Well, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2. If you have a Bible app, you can use that. We love that. That's great. Whatever you want to use just to get to God's Word, get to God's Word. That's the big idea. And make it to jo- or to Judges rather, chapter 2. What's interesting is we're going to deal with Joshua, a little bit of the story we uh, noted last week. Now, I start in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. It says, when Joshua had dismissed the people, this is after Jericho, after all of that stuff, after he dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inherited slice of land to take possession of the land. And it says, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, all who had seen the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. So, last week we noted how Joshua sees the angel of the Lord, goes into Jericho, goes around the city for seven days, city comes down, they go in, they kill everybody, and we go, yes, God is on the side of Israel. But we noted that that angel is on the side of the Lord. And when Israel's on the side of the Lord, that angel of the Lord that fought with Joseph and Joshua and everybody else throughout the Old Testament, he's on the side of those who are on the side of the Lord. But when you're not on the side of the Lord, things can get a little dicey. And so no sooner does Jericho happen that they then attack the city of Ai and it goes bad. Because there was sin in the camp, right? There was rebellion. And so they don't win. But then they get kind of coordinated again. Oh no, we got to rely on the Lord. And, and there's this thing that goes back and forth throughout the story of Joshua's life. Sometimes Israel's faithful, sometimes they're not faithful. Sometimes he's going to God seeking counsel, but then there's these other times where he doesn't. He just jumps to the the end goal that he thinks is going to be best, and he doesn't consult God, and it kind of creates problems for the nation there in this promised land. So there's this push-pull, this back and forth, this faithful to God, not faithful to God, trying to be faithful to God, and, and, and that's the struggle. And tragically, that problem then embeds itself into the mindset and psyche of the people to where they're not going to be as pure a nation as they need to be. So no sooner does Joshua die, everybody else that were the elders with him, they die, that there rises up another generation in verse 10 of Judges chapter 2. It's another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So it says they abandoned the Lord. Because what they decided was, you know what, God's fine, God's good, but that's the gods of our fathers. Man, I, we're not into that. We, we need something more. We need something more secure, more readily available, more dependable. And so we're going to start to bolt on to the God of Israel these other ideas, these idols. These foreign gods that are going to meet our needs. Now, the problem we have with this text right here is that as sophisticated Westerners, we quickly identify idols as these silly carved images or gold-claddened things. You know, we just go, oh, that's that's silly, that's mysticism, that's bizarre, that's, you know, who who would buy into that? Well, I'm going to break down really quick. This text isn't going to make any sense unless you understand the real context of an idol. 
and why that last song we sang is unbelievably pertinent to all of us in this room. Because idols are not as um, distant as we might think. Now, here's the first thing you have to understand about an idol, the ideology of an idol. The word idol even just comes probably, we think, etymology-wise, from the word uh, icon, or this idea of an image. So, an idol is something that catches the eye. Right? Whatever that thing is that catches your eye, you go, oh, I I need that, I want that, I can't live without that, my life will be completely different if only I have that. that. That's going to be kind of what an idol is going to say to potential followers of that idol. Now, some of the things about an idol that are important under the ideology of an idol, first of all, understand that an idol is not relational. It's functional. Idols weren't looking for some kind of deep relationship with those who followed the idols. They weren't looking for a daily prayer life out of the followers of idols. It wasn't that at all. It was not a relational context. If anything, an idol was a little bit like paying your taxes, There's no good relationship there, right? You're just paying your taxes. So there's not relationship. It's functional. It's not relational. The other thing is sometimes we hear idols and we think, oh, idols are sinister. But for them, they were sensible. I mean, why wouldn't you, uh, you know, have Yahweh or Jehovah God and then also these other little guys that are just basically like specialists in their field? God's the one big God, but then you can have a God over crops and a God over cattle and a God for fertility and a God for whatever else. And, and they're just specialists. And, you know, they're not sinister. They're, they're helpful, if anything. Another thing about idols, they were convenient. By convenient, what I mean is they were not doctrinal. They didn't have a long list of demands. They didn't have a lot of code or creed or anything else. They were just very isolated to the one thing they do. You give them something, they give you something, right? Which means it's about exchange, not engagement. You don't need to pray to that idol every single day. You just bring a little bit of something to that idol. You say, I'm going to bring you some food, so you give me better crops. I'm going to bring you this item, so you give me lots of children. It's just an exchange, not an interaction. And as I kind of hinted at, idols did not mind at all being inclusive. Like, the God of the Bible is very exclusive. No other gods but me. But all the gods of the area are like, ah, the more the merrier, man. Pile them on. You can have five gods, ten gods, twenty gods, fifty idols. Who cares? Because, again, we're not in competition. We're just in concert together to keep all of nature going the way it should go. That's the ideology of idols. So when you start to understand that, you realize that, again, we we get these pictures in our mind, but for the Israelites, this is kind of practical. This is just everyday stuff. They're not intending to be evil. They're not intending to insult God. And in fact, if anything, they think, well, it can be God plus these things, and it's, it's fine. Why wouldn't you do that? That's the ideology. Now, the psychology of idols, well, that's a little bit more complicated Right? How you understand what they do to you. What an idol does at its core is three things. Maybe, maybe more simplified, I'll say this. An idol is something where you go, that's so important. That thing is so important somehow that it will drive my behavior, it will command my emotions, and it will consume my thoughts. Right? So... The ideology is what it is, but now the psychology is more that. It's where you give them glory. 
Now, you may not think that. You go, oh, to give glory is to raise your arms and sing a song and everything else. Well, the word glory in the Bible just means weight or weighty or a weighty thing. So, if something weighs on your mind or weighs on your emotions or there are certain tools that you use to weigh your decisions, that's all related to giving something glory giving weight to it, it's going to affect your decision-making process. And if it's so weighty that, again, like I said, it begins to consume your thoughts. It's so weighty that it begins to drive how you act and react. It's so weighty that it is the decider between whether you have hope or fear, joy or grief, you feel filled up or depleted. Wow, that's a pretty weighty thing. These non-sinister, sensible, functional, convenient, uh, non-descript uh, or particular idols. See, all of this is a part of idolatry. And when you take it to the theological level then, all you really have is something that says, if you just give me a little bit of you, I will serve you. Just give me a little something and I'll serve you. Just depend on me just enough in this one area and I will serve you. See, that is the mission of an idol. And the deepest mission of an idol is saying, just let me have a little bit of room on that throne that you've reserved for God. Let it be God plus me for your hope for your joy, for your future, for your security, for your contentment, for your peace. Just God plus. That's all I'm asking. I'm not asking you to get rid of your God. I'm just saying God plus. See, that's all an idol would do. And so the Israelites, they're forgetting what the Lord has done. Right? I mean, they are, they are a nation that was led by God. They're not denying that necessarily. But they're saying God isn't enough. And if we're going to truly be blessed, we need God plus these more practical things. God isn't practical. God is distant, far away, on the throne, shows up every couple hundred years. That's not very practical. So we need God plus these other practical idols, these thoughts, these ideas, these ideologies, these systems, these concepts, these uh, trinkets, these things that catch my eye. That's all you're dealing with with Israel here. And so there's two particular idols that come out in this text. One is Baal, and the other is Ashtaroth. And we hear these, we go, oh man, it's already weird, they got names. How strange that we name our idols. Baal is the weather god. Ashtaroth is the fertility idol. So you go, great. So, they're into storms and sex. That's their problem. They worship hail and getting freaky. That you know, no. Let me let me help you. Let me really simplify this. Go back to their context, their situation, their culture, everything else, and you distill it. And here's what they were really getting at with these two gods: prosperity and longevity. That was it. You want to know what their two great, overwhelming deities are that they're trying to bolt to God? They say, we want God, plus we want the gods to give us prosperity and the gods to give us longevity. We want the guarantee of prosperity and we want the guarantee that we will exist tomorrow. Doesn't sound anything like today. 
at all, right? We just went through one of the most amazing political cycles where the two big things were money and tomorrow. Who will save us? Who will ensure prosperity? Who will ensure that we will still be a people next month, next year, next decade, a hundred years from now? And again, it's the scramble. Where do we run? What do we look to? How do we do it? How do we see it accomplished? Just like Israel. So today, it's going to be one of those weird days. I'm sitting here studying it this week, and I'm getting repeatedly confronted by the fact that whether we like it or not, as God's church, we still run the risk of being idol worshipers. Where we say, uh, it's the one true God, 100% there. But these other things, these other things, man, if they, if they don't happen, oh, it's, it's over. If they don't happen, there's no hope. If they don't happen, our future is it's, it's at stake. Well, that's all Israel did. So we need these other functional saviors and functional gods that we sometimes have more faith in than our one true God to bring about what we need. See, Israel was, in my mind as I look at them, um, sincere. I don't think it was like one day they woke up and they're like, oh, let's make God mad. They didn't do that. Uh, they woke up one day and they said, oh, gosh, man, what's going on with the crops? They're not going well. And so what should be the response then? Well, maybe we should go and we should worship. And they said, no, 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 worship, come on, really? I mean, God hasn't done anything since, like, Jericho. I mean, this was a long time ago, really. I mean, we, our parents tell us those stories. We've never even seen that before. God doesn't show up. God's not practical. God's spiritual. God's just spiritual. So we need to go to the Baals. And we'll give them a little bit of crop, and then they'll give us a bunch of crop. We need to put these big Asherah poles up, which are nothing more than just phallic symbols, basically. And that way we're going to make sure we have more kids and more lineage and more longevity. And, and, and again, we're going to have this heritage. So we're going to go to these things. Because God's just spiritual. I mean, if we just follow him more, seek him more, worship him more, share him more, that's not going to change the crops. It's not going to change the money. It's not going to ensure my wife has more kids. I need these other things. So again, they were sincere. And sincerely wrong. Because what Israel's ultimate challenge was that they looked at their conditions and they thought their problems were fiscal or they thought their problems were political or they thought their problems were military when their problem was spiritual and it affected all those other things. It affected all those other things. Right? The spiritual drives it all. Your God drives it all. That's what God has to get them to. So with that, now I want you to fast forward to Judges chapter 6. You know the situation. One generation knew the Lord, but they were sketchy. They didn't pass it on well. The next generation, you know what? They're going to the other gods more. Why? Because the heart is a factory for idols. That's what Luther said. Luther's right on. They're developing these idols. So in Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midianites, or the hands of Midian, for seven years. 
right? So this evil group of people that actually worshiped the Baals and didn't give a rib about God, God says, you know what, now I'm on your team. That angel of the Lord that says, I'm neither friend nor foe, right? I'm friends with Israel when Israel is standing with the Lord, and I will be a foe of Israel when Israel is not standing with the Lord. So Israel's not standing with the Lord. They're worshiping the Baals. They think all the idols are going to give them what they need, not their one true God. So they're at odds now, God and Israel. And so the Midianites are flooding in. And when the Midianites do this, they're destroying their crops, taking their food, taking their animals. It's just a mess. It's a huge mess. And it says in verse 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to help. They cried out for help from the Lord. Now, just to highlight here, um, Israel's not quite where it needs to be. They didn't cry out and say, forgive us, Lord. They just cried out and said, oh, crap. That's it. There's no, I repent. There's no, we've not been following you. It's just, we're losing. We're losing our crops. We're losing our cattle. We're losing an opportunity for a legacy. We're losing prosperity. But they cry out, nonetheless, and God, in his grace, is going to answer. Even though this isn't repentance, necessarily, he's going to answer. So jump to verse 11. It says, now the angel of the Lord, right? That neither friend nor foe angel came and sat under the great tree at Orphra. Not Oprah, this is her cousin, all right? So, um, at the great tree of Orphra, which belonged to Joash, who was the father of Gideon. And we find Gideon, the first scene, was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Right, so here's that great angel of the Lord, that guy we've been introduced to, that guy that in one shot can win any battle, commands all the angels of heaven at the disposal of the Lord to do whatever he wants. He shows up and he finds this kid, Gideon. Gideon's name literally means hack. This is a great way to start a story, right? So an angel of the Lord comes to a kid who's a hack. And not just a hack, he's a hack doing wheat in a wine press. That's like saying, I need to bake some bread. We're going down to the local winery. I mean, it doesn't, you don't do that. See, typically, if you were going to deal with wheat, you'd be up on the hilltop, and, you know, you would be throwing the wheat into the air, and the kernels would fall, and the chaff would blow away, and everybody could see, but this guy is afraid. He's scared to death. So he's in a wine press. He's buried in the ground and hidden away with walls around him so nobody can see what he's doing. This does not seem like the best guy for the next move God is going to make. This guy is not necessarily a stud. He is a scaredy cat to the core. And he's worried about what's going to happen next. So he's a hack who's hungry, who's scared. And then it says... The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Right? So you got the scene. He's just buried. Stand with me. No, let me see me because I'm a hack. You know, all, and then suddenly he just shows up. He sees this hacky kid and he's like, No, 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 you don't understand. You're a mighty man of valor. I'm sure Gideon's like, No, 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 I'm a wussified farmer boy that's afraid. I'm not. I'm not a mighty man of valor. To call Gideon this particular title literally makes no sense whatsoever. 
He is not valiant Gideon. He's not. Right? This is like saying honest politician. Tough hippie. You know what I mean? Like, it's not there. Sane Gary Busey. It doesn't matter. You pick your oxymoron. doesn't matter to me. Right? Sober Snooky. I don't care. Right? right? So, he's not valiant. He's not a warrior. He's not anything. But then the key to this is that the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. I forget who, who said it, but there was, it might have been Moody, who said, one with God is a majority. Right? One with God is a majority. And that's all that really counts here. Gideon is not unique. He's not special. He is very unassuming. But God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to be with you. The other thing that's so great about this is that Gideon is going to see himself as he sees himself. But the Lord God sees Gideon as God is going to make him. Right? What God can do with Gideon is far superior than what Gideon can do with himself. And so this is the great thing. Don't ever define yourself by your own set of gifts and limitations. If you've got God with you, he's going to take that and do some pretty bold, brilliant, useful, God-impacting, world-changing stuff. You just got to say, all right, God, I'm going to let you do it. If you keep defining yourself by your limits, that's all you're going to do. But God says, no, 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 I don't see you in the context of your limits. I see you in the context of how I am limitless. And so he wants to use Gideon for some pretty profound things. So he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. It says, and Gideon said to him, please, sir, which is great because, again, that sounds really polite. What he means is actually, please, listen, buddy. That's what he means. It's not, oh, well, please, sir. You know, it's not like, you know, like some little poor kid on the streets of London looking for food. He's not that. He says, please, listen, buddy. The Lord is with us. Well, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Now the Lord has forsaken us and given into the hands of the Midianites. So no sooner does this angel say, the Lord is with you. He's like, oh, you mean the guy that doesn't show up and is a distant God and aloof and doesn't care and gives us over to our enemies? Nothing new under the sun. Right? The Lord is with you. Yeah, whatever. If God is such a good and loving God, why do bad things happen to people? It's the same exact issue. So he's bothered by this. Where's God? Why does this happen? And the deeper problem for Gideon is the same thing we all face. And that's the truth that nothing erases or redefines or assaults theology faster than circumstance. You ever notice that? We see God in a certain light until a bad circumstance happens, and then we quickly go back to redefine God. That's what we do. God's this. Oh, something bad happened. Well, then God must not be this. He must be this. That's what everybody wants to do, right? That's always the problem. The reality is circumstances change. God does not change. Gideon's going to have to learn that. And what's so cool about this is that God says, you're the guy. Gideon says, I'm not sure you're the guy. Right? Like, where have you been? What have you done? And here's the brilliance of God. He doesn't even answer the question at all. In that brilliant verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Where have you been? What have you been up to? Uh-huh. Shut up. Um, you're going to go. That's all God does. Uh-huh. You're cute. I've got plans. I'm sending you out. All right? But I love what he says here. 
Basically what he says is, go in the strength of yours. In other words, you seem really passionate about, about how I don't deliver. You're really passionate about how I haven't been fair. You're really passionate about how you think I haven't shown up. Why don't you redirect that passion for something useful now? Instead of complaining and criticizing and pointing, why don't you go do something useful with that? And then again, God says, do I not send you? God keeps reaffirming this. I am with you. I am with you. I am sending you. Now again, Gideon has all the limitations that he can count up and rack up into a list. He knows it. But God knows that Gideon has everything that he needs to do exactly what God has called him to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Right? It's a great thing for every one of us to realize. You have everything you need to do, everything that God wants you to do. He doesn't give you more, give you less. He gives you what you need to do if he's called you to do it. So he tells that to Gideon. Stop asking questions. Go do what I want you to do. I send you. But Gideon isn't ready to accept this yet. He says, please, Lord, which means, uh, excuse me. He's still not getting there. He says, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my father's house. He says, my name is Urkel. I'm the mayor of Woosville. I can't. I'm not your dude. You were picking the wrong guy. It says, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. First the promise, I'm with you. It's the third time he says it. I'm with you. you got to get in your head, I'm with you. And I'm telling you in advance, here's the outcome. You're going to win. It's going to be like you get into the octagon with one guy. The entire clan of the Midianites. You're going to wipe them all out as though it was one guy and you get the first shot and you drop them flat in one. I'm telling you what's going to happen. Because I'm with you. Now here's the key to this, and this is what we have to own. What he's getting at with Gideon more than once as I'm with you is communicating the idea that our power comes through God's presence, not through our own self-determination. We get that way too much in our mind. In fact, that's one of the idols. One of the idols is, I have to do it. One of the idols is, is, God gave me a brain, so I have to act. And I agree, but you know how much we act in comparison to how much we seek? You know how much we plan versus how much we pray? We plot more than we worship? We're awesome at self-determination. We're awesome at just rolling up the sleeves and doing it on our own and not seeking God and then we can't figure out why we're working so hard and it's not going right. And see, this is what he has to get. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Power in presence, not power in self-determination. At all. Now, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have to make decisions and do things. He's going to have to do that. But again, the idea is you go to God perpetually. For all that you need. So he says, I will be with you. So, Gideon, being Gideon, says, um, Well, now, uh, if I found favor in your eyes, verse 17, then show me a sign that uh, it is you that speaks with me. He says, Please do not depart until I come to you again. I'll bring you my present, and I'll set it before you. So the angel says, I will stay here. I mean, here what Gideon is saying, I just need you to authenticate a few things. I need you to authenticate it's your power, it's your favor, and chiefly that I'm not talking to myself, all right? That 
authenticate my sanity. So it says in verse 19, so Gideon went out to his house and he prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes, right? I mean, so, and this is a big meal. I mean, again, remember, uh, the Midianites are taking everything. I mean, they're so freaked out, they're just trying to deal with, with their wheat in a wine press. I have no food or anything else. But Gideon has some level of taking ownership here, so he's going to take an entire goat. He's going to take a bunch of food. This is like a big meal. This is Thanksgiving. And he's going to make all of this and take it to the angel of God. And in verse 20, it says, The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and then pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And then the angel of the Lord, he vanished. So this is a little bit like Elijah down the road, right? Where it's like, all right, you can take this food. Now just just soup it up in broth. It's all wet. It's just ever, it's dripping everywhere. And that's like, okay, now we're going to do something cool. And then fire leaps from stone. I mean, just, and it's just gone, right? And then the angel vanishes. It says, verse 22, Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord, and he loaded his loincloth. And he said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It's like now, finally, he gets it. And right now he's kind of teetering on blacking out even. It's like, man, it's just, oh. God must really be with me. I really am sane. He really has a mission I'm going to fulfill. And it's in that moment that the Lord says to him, Peace to you. God gives a gift. He says, Do not fear. That is the command. And he says, You shall not die. That is the promise. And so in that moment, Gideon has everything he needs. The Lord is with him, he's been given a gift, a command. And a promise. That's what he's to do. And so with that, verse 24, then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. Now here's what I love about this right there. Oftentimes when we think about peace, whether we mean to or not, we define peace by the absence of things. Peace is the absence of strife. Peace is the absence, the absence of hurt or the absence of conflict or the absence of duty. But here Gideon gets it. Peace is the presence of something. Peace is the presence of the Lord. I find so often in people's lives where they go, I don't have any peace, I don't have any peace, I don't have any peace. I go, well, what are you looking for? And they, they almost always go to, well, I want to get rid of this thing. I want this thing to go away from me. Yet Gideon understands what it means is to say, God, draw near to me. Not simply problem, go away from me. So the Lord is peace. Not the absence of something is peace. The Lord is peace. And so Gideon begins to get this. And so recruited by God, now given gift, command, and promise with presence, God puts Gideon into action. Verse 25 says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, and the second bull of seven years, really, and this is a weird text, like all the Hebrew guys are like, Ugh. what this is getting at is a very long-worded way of saying um, the prize bull. All right, That's really what he's dealing with. Take the prize bull and pull down the altar of Baal that's in your father's uh, property and cut down the asrath that is beside it and build an altar of the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. 
Then take the bull and offer it as a burnt offering on the wood of Azeroth as you cut it down. So, so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told them. So this is a great scene for a couple of reasons. First is this. Idols are in Gideon's house. Right? We sometimes go, oh, idols are what unbelievers have. Idols are for non-Christians. No! We love idols. All of us love idols. We don't like to call them idols. We call them other things. But we, we get drawn to idols. And so idols are in the very home of Gideon. So God says, here's the first thing. You've got to clean house. And so he sends him basically to go kind of like Israelite cow tipping, right? I mean, it's like, go, go tip the bales at night. So that's what he's off to do. And think about what this is. I mean, this is no small thing. I mean, this is like, create an equivalent. It's like God says, Gideon, I want you to take your dad's 67 Camaro. I want you to steal it. I want you to drive it into the office of his headquarters and light the whole place on fire. Right? Just do that. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, Baal's is prosperity and Nazareth is longevity. And then again, it's his prized bull. Why not? Just go do all of that. Remove the idols by force because idols don't just go away on their own. Mark my words on that. Idols just don't go away on their own. They go away by force and it's hard and it hurts. But it's not enough just to pull out the idol. God doesn't say, just tear it down and walk away. He says, tear it down, take the wood of the other one, kill the bull, burn it there in repentance and offering to me. You better replace God with your idol or you'll go back to your idol. You will always be drawn back to the idol because if you're not drawn to God, you won't think he's sufficient. If you're not drawn to God, he's not going to be the provider. If you're not drawn to God and daily desiring his presence, you're going to go, what is that simple thing that I can just put back up, tip onto its throne, and let it rule my life? What is that thing that I think will give me more of my happiness, more of my joy, more of my peace, more of my contentment? Because again, you're going to go back to something that you want to serve or have it serve you. So God knows, and he tells Gideon, you've you, you got to replace that with me. So that's the mission. And the little hack steps up with valor. Tears it down, burns it up. It's all good, right? Well, not exactly. It says in verse 27b, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. See, this is what I love about Gideon. Yeah! At night. You know, like... Um, I'm all tough. Lights are down. Let's go do it. And so he goes and does this at night. Not exactly as bold as we'd want it to be. But then in verse 28, when the wind of the town rose up the next morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Azareth pole was cut down beside it, and the second bull was offered on the, off, uh, on the altar that had been built. And so they look at this. You've got to imagine what's in their mind. It's like somebody, I mean, for you got like this dead carcass, you know, like all burned up, right? And, and, and in their mind, they're going to be like, oh man, somebody ruined this guy's prosperity, mocked his virility, killed the blue ribbon bull. It's like a country song, you know, like lost my bull, lost my virility, lost my prosperity. I got nothing, right? Like, like that's, that's Gideon's dad, right? You get up in the morning, like, ah, got nothing, nothing. It's horrible. 
And then it's great because then they said to one another, basically, let's play a game of Jew Clue here, all right? So we're going to find out who did this, all right? So, who has done this thing? And they searched and they inquired and they said, Gideon, the son of Joash. It's like, it was Gideon on the hill with the Zippo. Get him, right? That's what they figure out because he broke down the bail and he cut down the Asherah and everything else. And it's just a big mess. And they want him dead. You know why? Because idol slaying is a capital offense. Because it shows that you are unpatriotic. You don't care about the health and well-being of your country. Those things are going to save your people. And if you tear those down, you don't care about your people. Right? So kill the guy. Right? He's not thinking like he should be thinking. He's risking us by risking our idols. But then there's this cool scene in verse 31. It says, but Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Are people really going to come in and save a god? It says, whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. In other words, if you hurt my kid, I'm going to hurt you. Dad's on his property with a shotgun. And even though his 67 is burning behind him, you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to kill you if you kill my son. So he says, if Baal is a god, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. And so that day, Gideon receives the name. And Gideon's name basically means Gideon versus Baal that day. I mean, that's the best way to put it. So, or, or maybe a better way to put it is Baal versus Gideon. Because they got into round one and Gideon gave the, the blow. And he laid down on the mat. It's like, is there going to be a rematch? Is there going to be a round two? We're going to find out. And that's really what his dad says. His dad kind of splits the difference. Don't kill my kid. He might have a point. But you know what we're going to find out? Eventually, uh, Baal will contend for himself if he's real. And we'll know then who's in charge, who's the bigger guy, what's going on. While this is going on, the bad guys, the Midianites, they start to amass. So Israel's freaking out about all this other stuff. And while that happens, it's the Midianites and the Amalekites. They all come from the east together in Judges 6.33. And they cross the Jordan and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And the size of the army is 135,000 troops. Now, let me give you some perspective. Bring up this next picture. This is University of Michigan. This is where they love to play their idol football. And, uh, <laughs> and in this shot is about 114,000 people. It was one of the fullest days ever at the stadium. So then if you put more people down on the field, you can maybe, maybe, if you crushed them all in, get to that 135,000 mark. That's the size of army that Israel's going to deal with. It's twice the size of our largest contingent of troops in Afghanistan. Take the highest time ever. Double it, that's what you got. That's what they're going to face. That's a big group of people. And so how do you even begin to contemplate that kind of battle? Verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. How do you face such incredible odds? Impossible, just numbers. You can't do that unless the Spirit of the Lord clothes you. And that's a game changer. So they sounded the trumpet and it's like Braveheart. Everybody's come down from the mountains, right? Like, all right, we're all piling down. We're all going to war. It's going to be great. 
And as the people are pouring in, all the Israelites needing to fight the Midianites, Gideon, the one clothed in the Spirit, has doubts again. I mean, you see this cycle in his life. And so it says in verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and the ground is dry, then I will know that you are saving Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Right? The ground's completely dry. The fleece just... Right? God's like, there, does that help? I love this. You know? Gideon's saying, uh, let not your anger burn against me. Uh, let me speak just one more time, please. But let's reverse that now. Let's flip the equation. And I love, because, like, I had a, a, a brother just before, or below me growing up, right? So we're three years apart. And any time we wanted something, we'd flip a coin. Remember this game? Right? So you flip the coin, and, like, he would win. Heads. Best two out of three, bro. You know, and, like, that's all this is. So he's like, uh, I didn't get the answer I wanted. Uh, best two out of three, God? God's like, fine, whatever. Does it again. Just reverses the order. This time the fleece is dry, the ground is wet. And so Gideon knows he's in. And so then Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early in the morning and they encamped beside the spring of Herod. Now, this is great, right? Because you look and go, well, big deal, the spring of Herod. Literally, it's, it's called, I mean, the, the, what it means is the spring of trembling. Like, you mount up your tiny little army. Where are we going? Spring, wanna wanna cry. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm taking you to a place known for trembling. So they're all there at Lake Wanna Wanna Cry, right? Like 32,000 of them versus 135,000 Midianites, right? I mean, this is a tough gig. And then the Lord said to Gideon, ah, man, the people with you are too many for me to, to go to war with the Midianites and to put the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. We did it. Therefore, proclaim to the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So basically, he says, just go to all of the chickens in Camp Quakey Boots down there and say, if you're afraid, you should go home, right? And like, no man has too much pride in that situation, I guess. You know, it's like, because suddenly it says, then 22,000 people returned and left 10,000. Who's afraid? I'm afraid. I'm going home. Bye. I'm, I'm gone. I'm out of here. Right? So that's, that's what they do. 10,000 remain. I mean, that crew splits faster than a cop busting a kid's kager. I mean, it's just, they're gone. Nobody's there. And so you got these 10,000 guys looking at the guy who picked a fight with Bale in the sandbox, right? Like, what's next? Well, then it gets better. God's awesome. All right, verse 4. It says, Then the Lord said to Gideon, oh, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, right? So, wanna wanna cry lake, right? And I will test them there for you, right? And, and, and I'm separate them into two groups, right? The ones that are going to go with you and the ones that won't. So the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, you will set them over there. 
And the number who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But the rest of the people knelt down, knelt down to drink water. Now, when God does the separation, right? 9,700 this way, 300 that way. I have no doubt that Gideon steps back and looks and says, at least we're not taking the 300 guys with the drinking problem, all right? So, that's good. 9,700 versus 135,000, that's some tough odds, but... And God says, no, 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 I'm going to give you the dog lappers, right? So, send the 9,700 home, you get the dog lappers. You basically got 300 pintos in a crash-up derby. Go to war! That's what he's got. That's some rough gig. I look at this in verse 7. Right? And the Lord said to Gideon, the 300 men who lapped. And again, lapping like a dog is not at all like a compliment at all. You know, those are the guys who be like, you want fries with that? You know, so it's not the war army you want to go to war with. I mean, I know what Gideon wanted. Gideon would be like any one of us. I mean, because when God first said, everybody who's afraid, tell them they can go home. I bet Gideon was like, sweet, I can go home. Right? No, not you, dude. Stop it. Right? Just bolt yourself to the floor. Just wait a minute. Now, what Gideon wanted was probably a little bit like this shot of 300, right? Yeah, Sparta! That's what he needed. That's what he wanted. What he got was something very different. What he got was that. (laughs) Right? That's what he got. Yant to go to war? Woo! Jumping them up, I'll sleep before go! All right. That's what he got. So, verse 8. It's going to stick with you. You'll never forget. All right? So, the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he set out all the rest of Israel, every man back to his tent, retaining only 300. And then they went to the place near the, the camp of the Midianites. Now, um, what's interesting about that, notice they grab provisions, they grab trumpets. Notice what they don't grab. They don't grab weapons. This is looking really fine right now. Verse 9. This is, this is a great thing. You, you don't catch this until you see it, and then every time you see it now, you'll, you'll laugh at it. So it says, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the enemy camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down. Isn't that hilarious? It's like, if you're afraid of the dark, turn out the light. You know, like, if you're afraid to go down, well, go down to the camp. If you're afraid to go down, you should go down there, right? And then you will hear what they say, and afterward, uh, you will be encouraged, right? Your hands will be strengthened to go down and fight in the camp. So if you're afraid of that, face your fear. Go down, listen in. What's going down in the camp? So it says in verse 11, then they went down to the camp, and they get there, and they see this outpost where there is, man, there is an army, army, right? There's camels without number. They're like the sands of the seashore in abundance. And and, and then in verse 13, it says, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, like their Soviet comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. That sounds like it should be in a song of a play. I dreamed a dream. All right, and behold... A cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. Like, what kind of a dream is that? 
right? I'm like, we're, I'm like past the crack pipe, you know? It's like, he's dreaming, there's this barley lobe, it hit a tent, fell over. The better part is his buddy. The other comrade answered, oh, there's no one other than the sword of Gideon. That's the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given his hand the Midian camp. I'm like, how did you get that from the dream? So I saw this loaf tumbling, and it hit the tent. Oh, it's Gideon! Run! You know? Here's what's cool. God is always working on both sides. Right? When you think God is only in your camp and only working in your camp, God's working in the other camp. He's doing stuff over there, even though it's as crazy as that. All right? So Gideon hears this in verse 15, and as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He worshiped. Worship should be Christian Tourette's syndrome. Whether good or bad situations, we should worship. Because we know God is there and God is working and God is doing things that we don't fully see. And so he worships. I love that scene. Right? Instead of saying, we're going to win. Let's go. Get the guys. Let's fire this thing up. He stops to worship God. Don't ever think, "I, I can't stop to worship. This is the eve of war. And he can stop to worship. And so in verse 15, it says, And he returned to the camp of Israel, and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given us, given the host of Midian into your hands. And then he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands, all of them, and empty jars and torches inside the jars. And he said, Look at me. So he starts to lead finally. He says, And do what I do. Do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet... And all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout. And this is what you shout. For the Lord and for Gideon. Now, you look at that and go, that's awesome. Right? For Aslan and Narnia, right? I mean, that's kind of what it reminds me of. But here's the problem. For the Lord and for Gideon. This is actually not a good note. This is a bad note. This is the start of a bad thing, not a good thing. For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and his hundred men who were with him, broken into three groups, right? So each group is a hundred. They came to the outskirts of the camp, right? Beginning in the middle of the watch. So this is early in the morning. Just as they had set the watch, and then they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hand the trumpets. So nobody's holding the sword. Right? Get that. How are you going to war against Jericho? We're going to walk around the city blowing trumpets and then things are going to fall. How are you going to war against the Midianites? Uh, We're going to have a torch in one hand. We're going to have a horn in the other. Right? That's, That's what we got. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They have one sword. Angel of the Lord, he comes with a sword. They come with worship, with trust, with faith, with obedience. That's what they come with. Verse 21, every man stood in his place around the camp. And and then the army began to run. And they cried out and they fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled. So in this... Just amazing feet. And this one moment, you're in this dead sleep. All of a sudden, bum, 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 
on, right? All this noise. You wake up. You see torches all around you. Everybody's scampering. It just turns into like this weird like Midianite bar fight. Like you don't know who bumped into you, but they're dying, you know? And they're, they, just, they just kill each other. Like, the whole camp just kills each other. 120,000 people in that camp die. 135,000 total, 120,000 kill themselves. They just kill each other. If you've been ever woken out of a deep sleep and punched somebody in the face for it, you know exactly what this is, right? You know precisely what that is. Now, from there, Gideon, he just goes after them. He re-rallies the forces. In other words, he's got his 300, but he calls a lot more reinforcements in. They go, they clean up shop. Everything is wiped out, and the Israelites win. Right, we go, yes, they won. That's the story. Well, then you get to chapter 8. It says in verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us. Who saved them? Apparently, they've already assumed that it was Gideon. See, Israel isn't learning. You've saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I do not want to rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. This is a brilliant moment for Gideon. I mean, this is like his George Washington moment. They would have made George Washington king probably in the day if he wanted to be. He says, no, 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 it's, this isn't for me. It's for the people. The Lord will rule over you. I'm not going to rule over you. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be ruled or be a ruler rather. But he does want to be revered and he wants to be remembered. Verse 24, however, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from the fallen enemies, right? So they do all of this, and the weight of that was 1,700 shekels of gold. doesn't even get into the other things and give us the weight of that. So basically, $1.1 million of gold. So let's gather all of that gold, all right? And it says in verse 27, And Gideon made an ephod of it and placed it in his city in Orphrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So, remember round one? It was Baal versus Gideon. Round two becomes Baal von Gideon. Literally, what happens is, is this idea of the ephod, we think in terms of the priest ephod, it's probably not that. What basically Gideon does is he erects a statue of himself and places this kind of pagan ephod on it, and it becomes an idol. He wants to be idolized. Don't forget what I did. Don't forget to remember me. There needs to be recognition. I need to be revered. And so the very thing he was sworn to destroy, he erects at the end of his life. Tear down the Baals. And in the end, Baal wins round two, and he re-erects an idol of himself. Of himself. Sometimes when you strive for significance, you undo anything that God would use to make you significant. That's all it is. So it says in verse 28, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. Sure, they're all dead. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. But Gideon, again, did not reestablish God worship. Gideon did not ensure that the people kept tearing down their idols. Gideon, if anything, gave them freedom to say, ah, oh, some idols are not that big a deal. 
Some idols are okay. As long as, you know, maybe God is first, your idols, they can endure. But as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel returned again and whored after the Baals. Right? And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. He did them practical good. He did not do them spiritual good. Again, in the end, he just put idols in their way. And can I tell you, here's the most amazing thing about some of these different people we learn in the, the stories we learn in the Bible. How is it that they can start off okay, they can see God work, and then they finish so poorly? It's because they stop seeking God. They stop desiring His presence. They stop thinking like, I, I, I need to repent of th- th- this trajectory. They start thinking it's God plus idols. And that's all He does. And so that's the lesson for us. In fact, this morning, real quick, I think there's three lessons. The first has to do with Jesus and you. I mean, it's all about Jesus for us, right? And Jesus and you, he gives you what you need to battle the idols, right? Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord. They served the Baals. That's what they did. But Colossians 3, 5 tells us, so put to death the sinful earthly things that are lurking within you. He says this to Christians. Right? Have nothing to do with sexual morality, impurity, lust, or evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. You go, well, I'm not greedy. None of us think we're greedy. Greedy is that tough sin, and it's a tough idol. I've never met a single person who says, I'm greedy. I've never met that. And see, some th- sins are easy to know. Like, if you're having an affair, you know, like, you're not my wife. You know, like, you know. Greed is a tough one to know. I think Paul does us a favor here by saying, worshiping the things of this world, if you think this world is going to save you, secure you, free you, uh, creating you unbelievable happiness, joy, and contentment, um, you're going to be disappointed. Right? So he says, don't, don't bow to that. In fact, in 1 John 5.21, it says, Dear children, keep yourself away from anything that takes place in your heart over God. Right? Some versions say, keep yourself from idols. But I love the way the New Living Translation keep, says it. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Right? If God isn't ruling in some corner, then something else is ruling. We're trusting something else over than Him. This was Israel's problem. You go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul kind of goes through the whole list of Israel through the wilderness and all the things they faced. And his conclusion is flee from idolatry because every time they were getting into these messes, it was just idolatry that was the problem. We want to go back to Egypt. Why? Because food is idolatry. Security is idolatry. Familiar is idolatry. Right? We don't have enough of this. We don't have enough of that. And they would run to idolatry. And he says, oh man, flee from idolatry. The other lesson that's in this text that I love about Gideon is that Jesus is in you to face the battle of reality. As much as to face the battle of idolatry, is in you to face the battle of reality. Remember what the Lord said to Gideon, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. These are all things that Jesus says. He says them all to us. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give you. Now, does that mean that your conditions are going to change for peace? No. Look what Jesus says in John 16. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. They take heart. I have overcome the world. Isn't that weird? He says, you're going to have peace in me. Oh, and by the way, lots of tribulation. 
See, again, we start thinking, oh, peace should be the absence of tribulation. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're going to have the presence of tribulation, but peace. Well, what a great promise. It means I should stop trying to see conditions change to give me peace. I should seek my God to give me peace regardless of conditions. He says, peace to you. Peace, peace, peace to you. Also, do not fear. What did Jesus say in John 14, 27 as it goes on? He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Right? I mean, this is what he offers. Think about how many things we get troubled by or afraid of that he says, man, seek my presence. That that, that stuff's going to erode and go away. You're not going to have that same sense of worry about prosperity or legacy or whatever. You're going to trust me. You're going to trust me. And then ultimately he says, you shall not die. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. What's the worst that can happen to you? Because you're not dying. You're just migrating to a new existence. Upgrade. That's what happens. So the advice of today is live as an idol-crushing, fear-overcoming, God-relying people of the Spirit clothed in the Spirit so as to finish well. Gideon just didn't finish well. He got too focused on the idols, too focused on the needs, too focused on the practicalities, too fearful, too concerned, too worried, too whatever. Thought about himself more than he thought about God. And he didn't finish well. The world needs finishers for God's glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. I thank you for these stories that are reminders. Reminders of your faithfulness. And reminders of how we sometimes choose to be faithless or idolatrous. That we let this world dictate us more than we let your word dictate us, more than your spirit dictates us, more than our eternal inheritance dictates us. May we crush the idols. May we see you burn them to the ground. And then may we erect in their place you. Altars to you. Altars of worship, of gratitude, and of praise. We love you and thank you in your name.